Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously interesting books. I was in Stockholm for the first time a few weeks before Christmas, so I was intrigued when I recently came across a new book about a study that's followed all the children born in that city in a single year throughout their lives from adolescence on. The book, called Born in 1953, is by Steen Orke Steinberg and comes from Stockholm University Press. The study... Project Metropolitan, began in 1966 with a questionnaire completed by the 15,000 children born in the city in 1953 and still living there. Two years later, their mothers were surveyed, and in the 1980s there was a third survey. The data was collated with other official records, but in such a way that individuals could not be identified. There's something rather poignant, I think, about researchers setting out on this project in the 60s, knowing that, if successful, it would stretch so far into the future that they themselves would never see its conclusion. A bit like planting trees. And there's something rather poignant about seeing the hopes, anxieties and experiences of 13-year-olds in the 1960s captured in the data. Steinberg writes, The children of 1953 were born at a time characterised by optimism. Sweden was a country in which everything seemed to be changing for the better, a country on its way to becoming modern. Sweden was changing, and the researchers wanted to know what early life circumstances might increase an individual's chances of flourishing later in life, and conversely, what might predispose an individual to later experience mental health problems or addiction or become involved in crime. When the study began, the media were broadly supportive, insofar as they took any interest at all. But in 1986, press coverage of the project suggested that those in the study had reason to be fearful, and by implication, all Swedish citizens whose private life could be pried into, sparking a huge national debate. Fear of state intrusion in private life, though the project in fact was a university, not a government one, was amplified by fear of new computers. The head of the Swedish army even suggested the project might be a national security risk if the data fell into the hands of a hostile foreign power. The project survived, but the debate raised questions that are with us still about who owns our data and the uses to which it may be put. 
The original lead researcher on the Swedish project was the late Carl Gunnar Janssen. My guest today, Sten Orker Stenberg, joined it later. As the cohort reached their mid-60s, new studies are still appearing, new ways of examining the data are still being found. And what I haven't told you yet, Sten Orker himself was born in Stockholm in 1953. So he too is part of the study. When I spoke to him on the phone from Sweden, I began by asking him what he remembered about filling in that first form when he was 13. I must admit that I don't remember. You don't remember? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember that questionnaire at all. Uh, right. But I fill it in. Uh, and my mother was also questioned, and she remembered it. And she, I remember that she often said that we were part of a very important research project, and she was pretty proud of it. Yeah. And one thing which really comes across from your book is what a very different place Stockholm was in the 1950s and 60s mm-hmm. from it is today. I mean, people who visited it will think of a, a very, um, you know, a very wealthy, affluent, smart city. Tell me a little bit about what it was, you know, how it differed when you were growing up there in your earlier years. The inner city was at that time very low standard in many houses. There were even, what do you call that in English? You know, the people had to walk out to the backyard to the to the dry loo, or what do you call it, dry closet? Outside lavatory or outside yeah. toilet. If, yeah. Me and my mother, uh, we were in a one room, one room with a kitchen uh, apartment, an apartment that now costs millions of crowns if you want to buy it. But that time it was slum. So we were very happy, and, and, and people moved out to the suburbs where they got uh, bathtubs, where they got uh, uh, showers, balconies, etc., and they were satisfied with that. And then the whole inner city was reconstructed, and part of it was teared down, at least in the, in the, in the central part of it. And uh, now that is very much debated, because it was not a good idea. At that time, in the 60s, they thought that uh, cars were the solutions to everything. So they were ideas of having highways basically through the inner city. <laughs> and now we, we want to bring the cars out of the city. So it has changed yeah. a lot. Yeah, it was a very different period, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you, you say things like television was, you know, when, when, when these children, were, when your children were born was um, pretty much unknown in Sweden and... Um, IKEA had o- only just opened its first showroom, I think, in the in the sixties. Yep. All all sorts, of, you know, all sorts, of, and you know, obviously, computers were were far in the in the future. But it was a it was a very different city, in other words, from the city. Uh, um, I think I think we I think I think we got our television set in nineteen sixty 1960 or sixty one. That was the first time. So the, it it would be fair to say the first decade of the project was mainly focused on gathering data. Is that is that broadly true, rather than analysing. Absolutely. And even longer, I would say, took a long period before they actually really managed to start research on the data. And when that started, they ran immediately into the big conflict about the project in 1986. The original press reports, you you quote from um, the 1960s, and the press reports were quite positive. It was it was it was looked on as something of, of interest and potential value. So 
When did that change? Because, it, as, as you say, it, it did turn into a bit of a scandal and a national debate. So yeah. when, did, when and why did it change? It changed. It started in the 70s. Uh, and one thing was the censuses uh, that were debated, uh, where uh, people were... Actually, we were forced to answer the censuses. And if we didn't do that, we were uh, uh, punished. A fine, a fine. A fine, yeah. So that was debated, and uh, people slowly became aware of computers, and computers at that time were big, big machines in big rooms, nothing that people had at home, anything like that. So it was like a threat. Orwell, 1984, why should researchers be interested in our lives? Why do do they really know everything about me? Well, two, I mean, two of the phrases that stuck in my mind, which were used by, by critics at the time, it was compared to living in an aquarium. And the, the participants were co- compared to caged rabbits, I think, by somebody. Yep, yep. That was Frese, Jan Frese, who became the, the director of the, the, the data authority. So because, Sweden, because Sweden was the first, the first country in the world to introduce data protection legislation, I think. Is yes, that, yes, 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 yes. As far as I understand, that's the case. One of the first, at least. So how did that impact on the, on the project? Not just the, not just the sort of public perception of it, but the actual execution of it. Did it, did it have an actual impact? Yes. Uh, the sociologists that were working with data uh, very quickly came into conflict with uh, the data authority, the data protection authority. And they felt that the authority was a threat for free research. And uh, there were some incidents when the the data authority wanted to check the questions that were asked to people. That conflict increased from from the, the authority started until the big conflict 1986. Now today we have a special regulation, a special law for ethical vetting of research. For me, it's still kind of funny that journalists can do almost whatever they want. They could be questioned after they've been they published things, not before. But we have to have a permission before we do things. And I think uh, it's gone too far, especially when we make research based on registered data that are already there, so to say. There are different opinions. One could say that it's good that we have an ethical vetting of research because it gives us authority and increases the trust for us. But on the other hand, if one has to check some activity that much, that must be some suspicious things gone on <laughs> so it depends on on your on, on on your point of view i think you say in the book that the debate over project metropolitan has left a lasting impact on on how research is conducted in in sweden is that is that still true today yes but um, today we did, did we got this legislation about research it's all over europe so it's uh, one should not overestimate the impact of the metropolitan research today, perhaps, but it has been mentioned as a, an example of a bad research for a long period. And one of my purposes with the book was to to give another picture of the book of of the project than this bad. It was like the the bad example for many years, and I thought that was not correct. The other reason for publishing the book, the Swedish version of the book, 2013, was that it was the 60th birthday of the 
of the cohort, and it was the only way to come in contact with the observation. At the, we call it the People's Universities, like a organization in Sweden, where they had a big meeting with, and invited people to come, and I presented the book, and lots of people born in 1953 came to the meeting, and so I thought they were going to throw tomatoes on me, or some rotten tomatoes, or something like that, but um, people came up and asked me, I was born in Södertälje, which is do you think I'm part of the research? Um, no, unfortunately not. And then they were disappointed. So people were more or less, oh, this is fun. This is like, you know, when people make research on their relatives or, or, their, or their heritage. Yes, yes. It was the same feeling. Oh, I want to be in the project. I want to know what I said when I was a boy or a girl in 1966, etc., etc. So it changed a lot. We haven't had much, because after the update of the, of the data, we haven't had much critique only a couple of people or something and then we bring them here up to the university and try to explain what's going on there's almost like a feeling of belonging for that cohort they feel like they're sort of part of a special generation almost (laughs) those who are aware of the project one i would say many people don't know i mean many people in in 1986 who were born 1953 didn't care but was not something they thought very much about So, so was it the case that the project might have sort of come to a halt if if you hadn't tried to revive it in in two thousand and three? Was that was it? Was there a danger that it that might have actually run out of steam? Yes, yes, we saved the data. Or actually, in the nineteen nineties, we Tolgonaranson became more and more sick, and uh, there were not much interest in the data in the Department of Sociology. So I brought it over to the Swedish Institute for Social Research. And after that, actually, it was Denny Vågre and I, uh, in the beginning, like 2002 or three, we, we had a glass of wine and talked and said, and we came to the conclusion that it must be possible to update the data, the data without the personal identification numbers. And uh, so that's what we did, and it's, it's the stories in the book. And and um, so it came to life again, and now it's very, very. I mean, the, the, the article after article is coming out, and got lots of money. So if it's something I'm proud of during my academic career, that was that I took the initiative to update this data and take care of it, so it shouldn't fade away. And so since since that time, since the turn of this century, there has, as you suggest, been a great deal of publishing. I think it's about 160 studies and articles have been published that interrogate the data in various ways. And I guess what they all have in common, inevitably, is looking at evolution across time of things which were identifiable in the original data and then tracking across time mm-hmm. to see the outcome for for, yeah. for that population. Yeah, and also now we have this project Relink, so they have uh, linked information about uh, our, I would say then, uh, as an I am an observation, <laughs> our children, our siblings, etc., etc. So it's a relink of generations. If you were to pick out some of the what you think are some of the most significant research projects? I mean, I, I know that's rather, it's always <laughs> difficult to get someone to choose favourites, but, but some, of, some of the things which you think this project has, has revealed that perhaps no other kind of study would have, would have revealed, what, what things really stand out to you? 
that already in 1966, uh, the answers from children gave a pretty good view of the of the future, so to say. Let's say the question that the question about who are you, based mainly with during your spare time or free time, and some children said that I'm basically alone, and they had an increased uh, risk of committing suicide uh, in the future. But there are other things as well. It's, it seems like we had this, what we call in Sweden, mods, which was something else than in Britain. It was like a subculture among children. It seems like you don't need to be one piece. Parents don't need to be that afraid of that the kids are becoming members of peculiar <laughs> youth uh, groups if they don't use drugs. Because we were a generation uh, that were using drugs a lot compared to other generations. And that had, of course, a very bad impact in the future. And there were there are millions of things that they that we've been researching about. It's kind of difficult to summarise. Of course. Let me me pick out one that that really stuck in in my mind. Um, You say that we we, we would, of course, like to think that children at the age of 12 feel that they have all sorts of possible future opportunities ahead of them and they can go out into the wild and make the life that they, they choose. But you say the research shows that those children were disconcertingly aware of their future opportunities. In other words, they were quite realistic about, you know, how far they could go socially, socioeconomically, mm-hmm. whether their lives were going to be, you know, good or better or worse than their peers. They actually had quite a shrewd sense of that already. Yeah. And that that is quite telling, I think. Absolutely. And it started with the study of Björn Halleröd, uh, where he used these questions. How, is, how what do you think about your future? It's going to be like like, like everyone else's, or worse or better. And yeah, they had a they had a, they, they really could predict the future in a way that is disappointing for 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 me as an adult today. Of course, it's like it's sad in a way. It's, yeah, but they can, they could do that. Very much so, already when they were 12 years. So uh, that doesn't mean that I know if children today are as good on predicting their future as they were in the 50s and the 60s, of course. Yes. So so we have to be cautious, don't we, in, in extrapolating too much from a particular cohort in a particular point in, in history. Absolutely. But we don't know about the future now. This is the generation we know what happened. Now, and, and we don't know what will happen in the, for the next generation. If children are today as aware of the future as we were in the 1966, and we are now living in a society which is very much that you should make success, you should be great, you could could do anything, I think much more than it was, as I remember it, during the 60s and the 50s, that must be a contradiction for many kids then. That's just a, uh, an idea. Maybe part of the explanation that the psychological well-being of children today are getting worse and worse, as far as I understand. So that could be like the clash between 
what I know about my possibilities and what the society tells me that I should do. You know, a safe society, but I mean companies, uh, advertising, television, YouTube channels, etc., etc. It's striking that almost a third of the studies done in the data have uh, focused on crime and criminality. Again, is it looking for correlations between those early years, the background and tendency to then in later life become involved in crime, pursuing those sort of correlations or causations? Should we be surprised that you know, how much attention has been, has been paid to crime in the study of crime in, uh, in the data? Uh, not if you know that this was the main interest of Kogan Jansson, that the project has data about crime, data that I don't think many other projects have. Projects have, I mean, longitudinal data about crime. And another coincidence is that people who worked with this update of data were criminologists. But the, the problem was that the data about crime uh, ended in 1983-84, I think. But the good thing is that the new update we are working with right now will include criminality until death. So criminologists are hanging on the doorstep. <laughs> they want to start analysis over the whole lifespan. But it's just a coincidence that Kogan Jansson was interested in, and because of that, he brought in data about crime, and also then that we now have an opportunity to update it until today. And my intention is, of course, to be the last one in the cohort alive, so I don't know, I can... <laughs> <laughs> you can do the last report, finish exactly. the final report. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, we we'll see. Well, tell me what updating the data entails today, I and mean, what 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 does that mean? Because you're not surveying, you're, the, you're not sending questionnaires to to the original participants. So, what what does updating the data mean? Uh, it means that we are using uh, rich registered data available from Swedish authorities, and they are basically collected at the statistics of Sweden. So there you have data about uh, means-tested social help, you have about health, you have about income, you have crime from another source, and lots of registered data. That's, it's a pity that we can't interview them again. That would, be, that would have been great, but it's, uh, we, we, we cannot and we may not do it. It should be... And what, what, is, what is the main reason that you cannot do it? There are two. One is an ethical one. When the project was anonymized, or whatever concept you want to use, in 1986, that was like a promise. So we could not break that promise. And the other one thing is that it is not, we are, it's against the law to identify individuals from statistics backward. You know, you can, if you, if you put information together, uh, you could uh, figure out if you have enough information who the individual is, and you may one may not do that. It's against the law. So that's the reason when we get new data, we want information from all born 1953 in Sweden, making it impossible for statistics of Sweden to figure out who are the individuals in the data set. If, if you were born 1953 in Stockholm and we had a dinner together, I could, if I was a criminal or a crook, I could 
sit down and be very kind to you. And, and during this discussion, try to figure out when your parents were born, where you were raised, where you went to school, etc., and other things. And if I gather enough information, I could go to the data and identify you, which was what would be my mind. First of all, it was it's unethical against the law, and it would probably all and it would also if it was if anyone uh, came out, it would be a disaster for research. Yes, but of course, of course, as I was reading the book and seeing the debate. And in some cases, the anger about the collection of the data, I was thinking how much more data we now give freely to um, <laughs> to the Googles and the Facebooks and, you know, how much, you know, all those very sophisticated algorithms who are, you know, and they're not really abiding by ethical considerations because they're commercializing the data. Mm-hmm. And, um, what you know, to, thinking back to those original questionnaires in the, in the 1960s, what a distance has been travelled in, in, you know, just how much data is collected and, and utilised about people. You're correct. It's, it's also like, uh, I'm surprised that people now willingly are giving out so much data. I am on Facebook myself, but I try to publish only things that I could stand on a square in Stockholm and scream out, so to say, publicly. But, but people write things that are very private. Then they are collected. It's also, I mean, I remember the first time I also, when I was Googling it, like I wanted to buy a new pair of special shoes or something like that. And just the day later, I got ads about that kind of shoes. So it's quite, it's quite troubling, isn't it? It's quite, it's quite troubling, just the degree to which, and not just, it's not just about collecting what you say, as as you say, but it's it's about your behavior and you know, things you might have looked at and mm-hmm. considered buying. And it all, it's, it's the way it's all amalgamated and put together, I think, which is quite troubling. Yeah, but it's great data if it was used for research. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. yes. There, there speaks the social scientist. Yeah. Let me just ask you, finally, you, you've already said you're going to be the last, the last man standing of the cohort. <laughs> but what, what, what kind of as your generation sort of moves into retirement and, and, you know, older age, what kind of projects do you think become possible that have not uh, hitherto been possible? There's uh, one very big issue now is that they want to raise or they, we, want, we, we need to raise the retirement age to be able to pay for, uh, for social services and welfare. And, uh, Making that possible, it's good if people have a good health, of course, so they can continue work for a couple of more years. And uh, maybe one could find things that could explain why people get better health when they are getting old with help of this data in the long run, so to say. How, how should we prepare for next the next generations to be, have, live a healthy life and, and being able to work a little bit longer to protect our welfare state? So then, of course, there are lots of other things, which is not because we don't have an opportunity to have to give out a questionnaire. It's, the data will not be that rich, but of course, it would be very interesting to ask people what they are doing after retirement, how they feel about the leaving their jobs, etc. And, and that doesn't include professors at the university because they stay here forever. <laughs> working, working on their data. I was talking to Steen Orker Steinberg about born in 1953. 
It's published by Stockholm University Press, and it's available in paperback. There's also a free open-access version online. You can find out more about it on the Stockholm University Press website. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for more interviews in this series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. I'll be back again next week with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.